Well, good morning, friends. Please do turn back to Esther. And the book is reaching its great uh, conclusion, slowly but surely. Esther chapter 8, verse 3, through to chapter 9, verse 19 this week, a longer section, page 414 in the Church Bibles. And if you remember Haman, who plotted the terrible destruction of the Jews, has fallen. And in the heart of the Persian Empire, everything has changed. Esther, who courageously stood on behalf of her people before the king, has found favor in his eyes. And Mordecai has been exalted to the position of chief advisor, a place of power. But the danger for the Jewish people hasn't yet been overturned, has it? And so let's carry on the story in verse 3 with these wonderful words. Then Esther did it again. She spoke before the king and fell at his feet and wept and sought favor with him to overturn the wickedness of Haman the Agagite and the evil scheme that he'd schemed against the Judeans. And the king stretched out the golden scepter to Esther and Esther rose and she stood before the king and she said, if it please the king and if I have found favor in his sight and if the thing seems right before the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters schemed by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamdatha, which he wrote to destroy the Judeans who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity which has found my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Judean, Look, I've given Esther the house of Haman, and they've impaled him on the spike because he stretched out his hand against the Judeans. But you yourself may write as you please concerning the Judeans in the king's name and seal it with the king's ring. For an offer written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So the king's scribes were called there and then in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai had commanded to the Judeans and to the satraps and the governors and the officials of all the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to province after province in its own script and to people after people in its own language and also to the Judeans in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by couriers with horses, riders of the royal relay horses, which were bred from racing mares, saying that the king allowed the Judeans who were in every city after city to gather and to take a stand for their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their loot on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. And if you remember, was the month that Haman had picked through his superstitious pur or dice to destroy the Jews. Verse 
Verse 13, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province after province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Judeans were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers riding the royal relay horses rode out hurriedly, being spurred on by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the king's presence in royal robes of blue and fine linen with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa roared and rejoiced. The Judeans had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province after province and in every city after city, wherever the king's command and his edict had reached, there was gladness and joy among the Judeans, a feast and a day of celebration. And many of the peoples declared themselves Judeans for the fear of the Judeans had fallen upon them. Now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on its 13th day, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemy of the Judeans hoped to gain mastery over them, it was reversed when the Judeans themselves gained mastery over those who hated them. The Judeans gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for a terror of them had fallen on all the peoples. And all the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Judeans, for a terror of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai was growing greater and greater. So the Judeans struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Judeans killed and destroyed 500 men, including Parshandatha and Dalphon and Aspartha and Paratha and Adalia and Aridatha and Parmashta and Arisay and Aridae and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamdatha, the enemy of the Judeans. But they did not lay a hand on any plunder. That day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa the citadel, the Judeans have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be done. So Esther said, if it please the king, let the Judeans who are in Susa also be allowed tomorrow to do according to today's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be impaled on the spike. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were impaled. And the Judeans who are in Susa gathered on the 14th day of the month of Adar as well, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they did not lay a hand on any plunder. 
Now the rest of the Judeans who are in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got rest from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they did not lay their hands on any plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day, they rested and made that day a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Judeans who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and the 14th day, and they rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and rejoicing. Therefore, the Judeans of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and rejoicing, a day of celebration, and a day on which they send gifts of food, each person to his neighbor. Well, the screams began early on a Saturday morning, not the screams of slaying in Susa, but the screams of catawailing in Craigleith. You see, something catastrophic had happened. The remote control had got itself stuck on rewind. No sooner had Hey Dougie theme tune ended or some YouTuber begun to do whatever it is that YouTubers do, then the whole thing would go into reverse. They would sit and watch their precious Minecraft worlds unbuild themselves block by block. And for hours of frustration, there was nothing the kids could do to stop it. Well, Esther chapter 8 and 9 tell the story of the great unwind. In fact, the punchline of this whole book comes in chapter 9, verse 1. On the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse happened. Or as the NIV nicely catches it, the tables were turned as blow by blow, province by province, the hidden God works to precisely reverse the terrible work of the enemy as he rides to the rescue of his people. But here's the strange thing. The soundtrack to this episode is not the sound of screaming. There's no hiding that this is a pretty brutal and decisive end to the book. 75,000 people will lose their lives but the signature note of these chapters is singing and laughter and joy. It falls very neatly into two halves. First, in chapter 8, at long last, the Judeans' rescue is decreed. And then in chapter 9, that rescue is delivered. And both times, the section ends with an outburst of sheer Beautiful, spontaneous joy, mirth, feasting, light. It's infectious happiness. We watch it spreading into every corner of the empire. Every scared and sorrowful face begins to smile. And then they burst into spontaneous gift-giving and merrymaking in response to the good God's who has shown his grace to the condemned and the helpless. Maybe the closest that we can come to this in our imaginations are those pictures of London, the day that victory in Europe was declared. And suddenly, all the gloom and the sorrow of war was lifted. And women dance in the streets with their soldiers, and the trumpets play swing, and strangers hug and cry. 
the author of this book, he wants us to cheer this morning, doesn't he, with joy and relief, not to clutch our pearls in horror at the killing. And if we're so wet that we miss that, well, we won't be listening to God. This is the joy of a holocaust averted, of death being lifted from an entire people and of hateful human hearts being put to flight. And unless we rejoice with them in this chapter, we'll never really be able to rejoice with honesty at Jesus' kingdom. Because the joy on offer here is really just a tiny taste, real but tiny, of the joy he secured in the greatest of all reversals at his cross, where our forgiveness was decreed, and the joy he'll deliver on the last day when he comes again to put down every last shred of hatred and harm. So this morning then, let's put up the bunting and cheer on for God's grace and rejoice in this great reversal of his son. First, in chapter 8, as we see how in every corner of the world, the great unwind of sorrow is decreed. And it's a strange start, isn't it? Last time we saw that delicious moment when wicked Haman fell and Esther was given all his property and Mordecai was given his position and Esther set him over Haman's house. Personally speaking, it was a total victory. And so Esther and Mordecai, it says, lived happily ever after with the luxury of Haman's wealth and all the prestige the empire had to give them. Except that's not what we see, is it? The next thing we see is Esther weeping. Because this is a mediator who loves her people. And there can be no happily ever after for Esther until her people are safe too. Christopher Ashe puts it well. God's people are living with their champion, Mordecai, ruling in the citadel, but their bodies still in the shadow of death. And we know something of that anguish, don't we? An age where two contradicting realities are true at once. So what wonderful words these are at the start of the passage. Esther did it again. She spoke again. She summoned all her courage and went back before the king and again has to wait for that dreaded golden scepter to see if she would live or die. But she knows now that she has favor with this king. Do you see how she pleads? This is a king who has no real love for the Jews, but for now at least, he's fond of her. And so she pleads on his sympathy. Verse six, how could I bear it if my people were destroyed? I wonder if we appreciate what a precious thing it is that we can speak to God on that same basis as a queen here talks to her king and with so much more confidence in him. Because it's not only true that God loves Jesus, our mediator, we have a high king who truly, genuinely loves everyone that Jesus loves. That's why he didn't teach us to pray, Jesus, Father in heaven. He taught us to pray, our Father Please hear me, Lord, because you love me. In your son, Jesus, you love me. 
And I couldn't bear it if you didn't hear me. While God's people have one here who can plead like that, the problem is, though, what she really wants is the one thing even this king has no real power to give her. Verse 5, revoke your irrevocable words and let my people live. Well, he's promised to give her up to half the kingdom, but verse 8, he cannot give her that. An edict written in the king's name and signed with the king's ring as this death edict was, it cannot be revoked. There are some things that even a king cannot do. All mankind, when we fell, lost communion with God. We fell under his wrath and curse, under a sentence of death. And even God cannot just sweep that reality under a carpet and pretend it never happened. His justice wouldn't allow it. His word can't just become untrue. So to spare us, God would have to find another way. Well, right now, there is a decree of death in force right across the empire, and it cannot be undone, but it can be overwritten with a decree of life. Mordecai holds that ring now, and so he can send out another irrevocable decree, not sweeping the first one under a rug, but ordering something that is precisely equal and opposite. Part of the beauty of this whole book is that it's written as a perfect mirror. Right in the center of the book, the turning point was that one hilarious, wonderful night when the hidden God changed everything. And the second half of the book, where everything comes right, perfectly reflects back the first half. Blow by blow, word by word, verses 9 to 14 undermine that edict of death in chapter 3. I wonder if it sounded familiar as we read it. This decree from Mordecai goes out to all the same satraps and governors and officials in all the same provinces, province after province, in every corner of the empire from India to Ethiopia. But this time it's addressed to the Judeans as well. Suddenly they have a name. They matter. They have Someone in the heart of the empire who cares for them and gives them a voice. And the decree says, verse 11, that they are free to defend themselves against any people and any power who tries to lay a finger on them. They are free to do just what the death edict did to destroy, kill, and annihilate men, women, and children. It's the same language and to plunder their loot, the same language. But this time it's not based on people's race. This one will be based on people's hearts. Only those, verse 11, who sought to attack them would fall under this edict. And there is one change in the way this one's written, one funny detail that the writer seems very excited by. Presumably this edict is spread around the empire through exactly the same Pony Express that made the ancient Persians famously efficient. But this time he really hams it up, doesn't he? It's like a, a girl in a pony club. He's fascinated by this. There's some 
niche information about these horses and their pedigree. These are not just any ponies. These are the royal relay horses, bred from only the finest and fastest racing mares. What do you think that little bit of Persian trivia is here for? There's a nine-month wait until chapter nine, until that terrible date comes that Haman's magic dice had picked out for his holocaust. So no rush, you'd think, to get this word out. But when life is decreed, there's a sense of urgency to share the news, to bring joy. While God also decrees death and God decrees life, but news of life travels from heaven with far more urgent and enthusiastic hoofbeats, doesn't it? It's grace that brings rejoicing in heaven. And this is a story about grace, the unwinding of all Israel's sorrows. And so the chapter ends, chapter eight, with Mordecai emerging from the palace in all his glory. A chapter ago, as, as someone put it, we saw him briefly transfigured. He was a man of sorrows, and then suddenly, for just a moment, he was placed on a royal horse and dressed in a royal robe. But this time, it's for keeps. Why do all the people roar and rejoice when they see Mordecai in blue and white robes with a golden crown and linen and purple? Well, those words may not be very triggering for you, but you see, my pride is still pretty bruised from the painful experience of trying to translate chapter one of this book. And that makes this vocab painfully familiar to me. Who knew that the Hebrew language had so many wretched words for purple and blue and white and linen? Who knew? Well, that was just how the glory of the king's palace was described at the beginning, wasn't it? Mordecai emerges here like a miniature human walking palace. In chapter one, it was as if all the glory of King Solomon had been lost from Israel and given to a Persian king. Now there's a descendant of a Jewish king, a true and better King Saul, wearing the ring and the crown. Mordecai is pictured as God's exalted, suffering king. And for the rest of the book, that's the role he plays. Everywhere he goes, verse 15, there is joy and honor and song. And everywhere he goes, there's dread among his enemies. Those who are wise bow the knee. They declare themselves Judeans because they've seen that in Esther, in Mordecai, there's life. Do you see how completely then God is unwinding all the sorrow of this story. When that decree of death went out in chapter 3, the city of Susa was thrown into confusion, and everywhere, we were told, wherever the news reached, the Jews mourned and they wept. Now the city of Susa sees their king, and they're thrown into rejoicing, and wherever the news reaches, verse 16, there is gladness and joy. The decree of death went out in chapter 3, and people fast. The gospel goes out now, and people feast. Now, one question people often argue about is, 
Who then the true human hero of this book is meant to be? Is it Esther or is it Mordecai? Well, what do we see here in chapter 8? What brings about the great unwind of Israel's sorrow? It takes someone to plead before the throne, acting almost like a priest. And it takes someone to rule over the people, acting almost like a king. It takes Esther and Mordecai together, a priest and a king. Up in verse 7, the the king of the empire is talking to them both, isn't he? Between them, they represent Israel's hope. And in every corner of the world, wherever news spreads of that work of God's priest and his suffering, exalted king, the great unwind of sorrow is decreed. Until at last comes chapter 9, when in every human heart, the great destruction of hatred is delivered. Now, you'll be forgiven if you're a little bit rusty on your ancient Jewish calendar, but the author has been keeping a very careful track of all the dates, hasn't he, through this story. Mordecai's decree of life in chapter 8, verse 9, came exactly 70 days after Haman's decree of death back in chapter 3. 70 days, a number that for any Jewish reader who picked up on it would be bound to be packed with meaning. Seventy years was the length of time God had decreed for Judah's exile, her curse, her sorrow. And so there are layers of grace here, aren't there, being lifted away, layers of sin and sorrow. Seventy days from one decree to the next, and then Another nine agonizing months to wait until the dreadful day itself, chapter 9, verse 1. So think then what has been happening between chapter 8 and chapter 9. Nine long and patient months of mercy. Nine months when every soul in the empire was given the chance to hear and respond to the good news, to pick aside life or death, fear the king, kiss the son, fear this exalted suffering saviour before the day of his judgment comes. And clearly many of them take the opportunity to do just that. Look who stands up to defend the Judeans when the killing begins in verse 3. It's all the officials and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents, the very people whose job it would have been to organize the extermination of the Jews. They switch sides. It's an extraordinary reversal, isn't it? Grace. Sometimes God summons armies of angels to surround his people and fight for their king. But a God who can do that can just as easily work invisibly in the hearts of a few Persian satraps. And so here they come, changing sides. And this is important. It means that when the day of judgment arrives, there are no neutral parties. There are no innocents in this story. If you think this is a tale of savage, disproportionate vengeance, then I'm afraid, friend, you have got God very, very wrong. 
This is a story of incredibly disproportionate mercy and grace. 75,000 people lose their lives, and that is a big number, isn't it? But remember what was planned, the wholesale final solution of the Jewish people, their women, their children, their memory, the seed of their hope, their Messiah, and in every last corner of the known world. James Philip put that number at something like two million souls. So this is not a story of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth vengeance. Look what we're told time and again. Chapter 9, verse 1, it's those who hated them who the Judeans gained mastery over. Verse 2, those who sought their harm. Verse 6, those who hated them. Verse 9, the enemy of the Judeans. Verse 16, what they do is defend their lives against those who hate them. Twice we're reminded that the architect of all this evil wasn't just a man called Haman. He was Haman the Agagite, a man whose people, the Amalekites, have sought to blot out the gospel right from the start. And so for nine long months, every human heart is given the opportunity and the excuse to back down. And what a shocking thing that after all that time, there are still 75,000 people left whose hearts are so burning with due hatred that they refuse to repent. This is disproportionate patience. It's grace. And if we are to put ourselves here today somewhere in this story, well, we'd be living right in between chapter 8 and 9, wouldn't we? Living with two decrees, both in force, one of judgment and one of mercy. We do not live in an age where we're called to take God's justice into our own hands as they are here. We live in an age of extraordinary patience and love. This age when beautiful feet are called to carry the good news of Jesus with all the same urgency and joy as these hooves. But how would those two million Judeans who've lived for a year now under the threat of extermination, how would they ever find rest from that fear, their children's fear, in a world so filled with hatred of them and their God? It would never come, would it, unless that hatred was eventually rooted out properly. Eventually, justice has to come to every human heart. And the big, wonderful truth of Esther chapter 9 is that when God's justice comes, it is beautifully, perfectly, supercalifragilisticexpialidociously thorough, 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 thorough and complete, isn't it? Nothing's left. For most of the passage, we only get to see what happens inside the capital in Susa, the citadel. 500 men killed in verse 6 in the warm-up. It's a start. But among those 500, there are 10 men whose names are recorded, itemized, and accounted for. The 10 
sons that Haman boasted in a few chapters back? Why do those names matter so much? Well, because what we're seeing here is not just any old battle. What we're being shown in this chapter is a holy war, a battle between two lines of humanity that we've seen and traced through this book right from the start. Have you noticed a strange sentence that's repeated three times in this chapter? They did not lay a hand on any plunder. Why are we told that? Haman planned to plunder them. They were given permission to plunder the Agagites. It was an equal and opposite decree. But why wouldn't they touch a penny? Well, because God's people knew that this was bigger than a battle for revenge. This wasn't about fighting for personal gain. They were fighting as agents of God's justice, a holy war. When God's people fight for justice in the Old Testament, he forbids them from taking a penny. Now, Israel had never been very good at that. They were never very good at holy war. And one of the worst at it was Mordecai's own ancestor, King Saul. Long ago, he was given the chance, he was commanded to finish off these Agagites. And he made two terrible mistakes, which cost him the kingdom. He was greedy and he was weak. He fought for nothing but his own personal gain. And so he came home from that battle with a whole flock of bleating sheep, plunder that he shouldn't have taken. But he let Agag and his seed live. And Mordecai, his descendant, he is not about to make the same mistake. This is his chance to redeem Israel's kingship. So no plunder and no weakness. Sometimes as a vet, I'd be in the middle of a particularly gruesome bit of surgery, and to see what you're doing, you've got to swab away the blood. But once they turn red, those little swabs have a nasty tendency to get lost inside bodies. And so you always make sure there is someone keeping count. If 10 swabs go into the body, then 10 swabs have to come out before you close the wounds. Otherwise, one of those little swabs will fester away and come back to bite you. Well, you see why this list of 10 names is counted out for us and why good old Esther even asks for a second day to make sure the job is done properly. It's because every dead Agagite is an act of obedient faith. It's an act of trust in God's promise that he would deliver the world through this nation, the Israelites. Nothing could threaten that. And that's that critical, isn't it? Will the Messiah come? Will we trust God and fight for the coming of our king? And so once the spikes go, the 10 last snakes of this book, just as King Saul and his sons had ended up on Philistine spikes, when they shrunk back from their fights, it's all being reversed. And the deepest repentance then of this story has been in Israel itself. Do you see that? Here in exile, at long last, they have a priest of sorts and a king of sorts who have learned the lesson of their history. 
And then when the camera zooms out in verse 16, it is the same story right across the empire, but in one swift, sudden day of justice. And so the drama of this book ends with crushed snakes lying everywhere. Because thank God, he is not willing to leave one drop of hatred left in his world. When Jesus comes to make things right, there will not be one swab left in the body, one corner of our hearts left dark and dirty, one tear left in one eye, because he has got his heel bloody already in this battle for the people he loves. And when he does a job, he does it right. And so every last death here that we might want to clutch our pearls in horror at and tell God off for, we actually need to repent of and praise him for instead. And perhaps we also need to say, thank you, Lord. Thank you that I was spared that. That by your mercy, you let me bow the knee to your king while there was still time. And my death was taken by him. Life then for God's people, rest, feasting, the joy of inexpressible relief, a curse that we could never have broken, a forgiveness we could never have earned, but only through death. These moments of bloodshed in the Old Testament where God's people wage holy war, they give us a little picture in history of God's ultimate judgments on history. And if we think that that day, Jesus' day, will be any less fierce and bloody than this day here, all that means is we haven't paid much attention to our king. Jesus' words are far more fierce than anything we'll read in the book of Esther. He is no Radio 4, weak handshake kind of cleric. He is committed to bringing joy back to his people, whatever it takes. Ultimately then, what we're watching in these Old Testament shadows isn't God picking on one people group or even defending one people group. What we're watching is God waging war on hatred and sorrow itself. Holy war is how he brings about salvation. The war his son was born to wage so that his own body could become its ground zero, its som. Fighting an enemy that wasn't just out there, but was in here. There was sin and curse to deal with on his own side too. Rest and joy come at a terrible cost only through death. But in that battleground of his body, God's wrath, and God's mercy meets. Those two decrees are reconciled by our priest and our king so that we can live here in this age of tension, an age where both decrees are in force, but we can cheer and rejoice in our exalted suffering king and summon every corner of the world, every human heart to his mercy saying death is dead and love has won and Christ has conquered the great unwind. But he will come again like this 
to judge the living and the dead and to finish the job. And that day should be the day when the real rejoicing begins. Let's pray. Thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that however wonderfully fierce your justice is, your mercy is more. Thank you that blow by blow, heart by heart, you are working to reverse the work of evil in this world. Thank you for the great reversal you brought about through your own death and resurrection for us. Thank you that we have a priest in heaven who cares for our tears and a king on the throne who can put them right. And thank you that you will not rest till all your people are freed from our sorrow to rest in your joy. Lord, would each one of us be found in you when that day comes. Amen.